since brevity is the soul of wit. More of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward, an infinite and endless liar, an hourly promise breaker, the owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertained. I'd beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. I'm Aiden. I'm Lindsay. And this is The Big Spot. And we're here today to discuss um, one of Shakespeare's greatest named plays, one mm-hmm. of the great history plays. Maybe the greatest history play. Well, some might argue that. I might of not the, be one of, of them. Of the English histories. Of the English histories. Richard III. Okay, okay, fair. We're we're talking about Henry V today. (laughs) It's Henry V. Anyway, wrapping up the Henriad um, and all of the great Wars of the Roses history plays that that all of the history plays kind of feed into, with the Mm -hmm. exception of uh, Henry VIII. And King John. King John, yeah. Yeah, But otherwise, yeah, Yeah. that's that's the crux of them. And Um, yeah, yeah. this is the summary. This is kind of the... The big climax in the end where everything was heading. Yeah. I guess. Or started in the case of Henry VI. Well, yeah, okay. (laughs) You know what? Because Shakespeare fucked it up and and, and he wrote them out of sequence, then that's why we're saying, you know, but it's the last of the plays that was written, but it's the middle of the story. It's like the prequels. We've talked about this. We've talked about this many times. It's so confusing. Henry V. Henry V. Um, Yeah, so it's. it's my turn to do the um, the honors today. Yes, Lindsay, um, which I am is looking so unfair. I'm sick, Aiden. Yes, Lindsay caught a cold. Well, I gave you the cold, probably. Yeah, so, and it's your fault. So and you're I, the one yeah. who was like, "Ha ha!" It's your turn to do the the synopsis today. Yeah, I was very happy about it, just because I can't think of it. So, Lindsay, you have thirty seconds <laughs> on the clock. Let me know when you're ready. I'm ready. Go. So we have uh, King of England, newly minted, um, ready to go to battle with France. Um, in part in the Hundred Years' War, it's just the latest battle in the Hundred Years' War, and he wins, and then he marries a, a French princess. Yeah, you got fifteen seconds more. Well, that's it. That's that's, that's <laughs> it. That's the play. I mean, it's actually a really easy play to sum to sum up, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of battles and a bunch of people die, and Falstaff dies off stage. Yeah, Bardolph dies um, kind of off stage. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's just okay. the king of England goes to war with the king of France and he wins. I mean, the, really, like essentially, that is the whole when you play. boil it yeah. down, it's, that's what happens. Well, and that, that's one of the most interesting parts is that you're right. That is all that happens. Yeah. Um, but there's all these other little bits and pieces thrown in throughout. I think uh, the play is noteworthy for a number of reasons. Um, the thing most people probably think of are the the big speeches, the the war speeches, the once more unto the breach. St. Crispin's Day. St. Crispin's speech, Day. Yeah. These these iconic uh, war speeches that, um, you know, feature in all sorts of propaganda to this day. Sure. Um, but the play's also a really, uh, really, really concerned with kingship. And we, we talked about this with all the other history plays they're as well. They're all you know, about kingship. They're all about it's kingship. It's like a Gilbert and Sullivan. They're all about duty. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and <laughs> this one, though, is is kind of, and we talked about this before, it's kind of the pinnacle. Henry V is kind of held up as the great warrior king, for yeah. sure, yeah. Um, but also a great uh, man of the people to, to yes. a certain respect. And there's, yes. there's a lot of uh, tension between uh, the king and the people, his subjects. Mm-hmm. And that really... Uh, 
creates kind of the the tension not so much there is tension between england and france but sure. a lot of the the subtext and the 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 uh and subtext is a good word i was gonna say thematic sure uh okay. kind of tension is is between the higher class and, and lower class yeah. and you know w- what are you fighting for what are you dying for um yeah and it's interesting because we've seen this if you look at the two parts of henry the fourth and henry the fifth is kind of a trilogy of plays concerned with the same kind of things this this is the culmination of that and and so things that were kind of set up with prince hal and falstaff in east cheap in part one of henry the fourth um kind of come full circle here when Mm -hmm. you have you know henry walking through his his men the night before the battle of agincourt talking about um talking with them about what's going to happen and and what is the king's role in um in the guilt or uh, in, in accepting blame for the deaths of his soldiers. And then are we actually a band of brothers? Yeah. Um, the the leveling of that playing field in this play is really foreshadowed in Hal's um, ability to become one of the common men yeah. in parts one and two. More in part one. More in yes, part one yeah. than part two, but definitely in those earlier plays as, as Hal. So... It does feel like we're we're being brought full circle, but there are other things going on that, you know, uh, we we talked about it in in our discussion of Henry the Fourth, and you know whether Hal is um, genuine, yeah, and some of that maybe I I felt when I was reading it, it kind of comes back to that is he is he genuine, um, and uh, and then there's the, I I'm I was curious and and I spent the last couple of days looking at like the historical Henry V as well yep. and just some of the things that um, Shakespeare has done to um, storify his his story to make it um, presentable on stage yeah and and how it kind of clashes with the historical record mm-hmm. um, which maybe do you want to talk about that just really briefly like I don't know if there's... yeah like I mean well and it's interesting because the other thing that the play is really well known for and it featured in we watched the 1989 uh, Kenneth Branagh version right. obviously uh, we've been talking about that for months now uh, so we finally watched it again it's the only reason Aiden wanted to read the play kind of watch. really <laughs> uh, and but it, it it uses the the chorus which is right. also a unique kind of thing within Shakespeare especially within the histories there was no other play that featured um, a chorus let alone one that reappeared at the start of every act right. um, and that 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 kind of functions as kind of like a a historical narrative melding point where it's like now imagine he flies back to England and then he's back in Paris for the peace accord and and he, and he's skipping over all these things and it, it kind of acts as a as a as a glue the a kind narrative of narrative device yeah it's a narrative well, it device is. that's yeah. what a chorus is like I mean when you look at the I, I have it pulled up right here on oh the, well on what the do classical you know? Greek chorus there you go. Um, the the function of a of a chorus was to comment on the action or to offer background information or to set the scene and that's kind of what this chorus does which and it is unique i think there are only three other plays that use a chorus type figure mm-hmm. as you know Romeo and Juliet's prologue and we talked about this a bit that most of the plays probably would have had some form of prologue yeah. or chorus um but they just haven't been recorded. They've been lost to time. But this one keeps it, and there's yeah. a chorus at the beginning of every act, yeah. um, which I think when we get to talking about this a bit more, we'll find that Aiden and I disagree quite yes. strongly about the, uh, yes. the effectiveness of a chorus, <laughs> especially when it's filmed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, Aiden, where you're, where you're headed with this is that the chorus is kind of addressing 
the history. Yeah, yeah, a little more as than opposed to yeah. the literary characters, characters. that, especially because he is yeah. inheriting them from Henry the the Fourth Part One and Two. This Hal character that's now yes. Henry the Fifth. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's a little harder to weave back into that historical flow where he might want to, where and which he did with Richard the Third and, right. and other characters, right? right. So, um, so yeah, you know a little bit uh, more about the history having dived into it, Lindsay. Is there anything? like of super relevance that really impacts or changes how you view it? Um, I think the most interesting thing for me about Henry V as a person, as a historical figure, was that he was a great military leader. Mm -hmm. That's historically true. And he was a historical leader, uh, a a wartime leader. Um, Even as far back, I think, Shrewsbury, he was 16 or something during the Battle of Shrewsbury. And he was leading... Um, a battalion of men mm-hmm. against Hotspur and the the forces that had amassed yes, against, against his, his father. father yeah. um, and I think that the Henry the Fourth plays um, they've downplayed that to a certain extent for the purpose of building up this wayward youth story mm-hmm. that um, that then at the end of Henry the Henry the Fourth, Part One. Um, he re- he wins the day, right? Mm-hmm. He kills Hotspur, and everything is great again. And he falls back into favor with his father, um, which is not ten- it's not historically true. Like yeah. it was the um, I think the Battle of Shrewsbury where Henry was um, hit with the arrow. I actually yes. watched a whole documentary about the the tool that was invented to extract yeah, to the arrow, take the arrow out of his skull, yeah. which we'll link in our description, I think, because it's just so gross and horrible and awesome at the same time that this was like medical mm, science breakthrough that yeah. happened on the battle of Shrewsbury, the field of Shrewsbury. Um, so like the plays kind of downplay his, um, his leadership and they, they kind of mix that around a bit because the battles happened, and then Shakespeare, or sorry, and then Henry had a falling out, had more of a falling out with his, his father. father. Okay, after and, that point. Yeah. And then comes back into favor later on. And I also watched The King, the Netflix film yes, The King, which, which does also about, yeah. muddle things a bit, and yeah. I think is a more emotionally true telling of mm. the Shakespeare stories, not the historical stories. Okay, so it's, okay. a, it's an interesting, I think it's still worth watching, but... Um, you know, they presented as the as though uh, Henry's younger brother Thomas was maybe going to be inherited um, ahead of him. Mm-hmm. That that Hal was going to be disinherited and and not become accept king. the throne. Um, so, and I couldn't find any historical basis for that either. But it does seem to track with what mm-hmm. was happening in the way that his relationship with his father might, it, it was not a great relationship. It was yeah. quite contentious. And, and then they did make up and he ended up becoming King. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, I guess anytime you're reading a Shakespeare play and you're looking for historicity, you're not going to find it yeah. necessarily exactly as it happened. But I think what Shakespeare does is get to that, that core emotional, um, thrust of whatever mm-hmm. is happening, he's able to distill that down and, and find a through way. Um, and that's how you get into the, the story and the hist- historical aspects of it don't matter as much. Yes. And that's where the Netflix series really picks up. And it, it just as a t- side tangent, it is kind of Henry the Fourth parts one and two and Henry the Fifth yeah. wrapped together in two hours and 20 minutes. So okay. it's, it does kind of splice together a bunch of bits yes. from everything and kind of weaves this interesting story about, you know, 
the man who doesn't want to be king who suddenly has to be king and then promotes Falstaff to be general of his <laughs> forces in France. You know, it, like, yeah. uh, it, it deviates quite strongly yeah, from, from Shakespeare. From Shakespeare. Yeah. But yeah. putting that aside, I think that's the more interesting thing is I'm less concerned with the historical Henry. Yeah. And it is, it's more just interesting to look at the plays as like an emotional retelling of the fathers and sons and honor and um, the big themes, I guess the big pictures and kingship and kingship and loyalty and all of those things that, that kind of play together in, um, it, over the course of those plays, yeah, I think that's where that's where their true story is. You can always find history somewhere. Yes, right? yes. And and anytime you're looking at history, it's always going to be you know. Yeah, someone's telling. Someone's history. telling yeah, it exactly. Yeah, yeah. And with these, you know, Shakespeare's sources were English. Yeah, and, with, and yeah. the winners. Yeah. and he was writing it as we've mentioned in the court of of a Tudor queen. Yeah. So I mean, it's. How true is the history going to be? Exactly. Right? So. Who knows, right? Um, but it is, but it is, that is a good segue into uh, one of the first kind of topics that we wanted to talk about, which is um, kingship and power. And, you know, we we've, we have talked about it many times on this episode. What makes a good king mm. in Shakespeare's mind? Yeah. Um, it really, I think coming into this play, we at least I kind of come in with the assumption that it was Henry V is the ultimate king sure. uh, to a certain extent because he does know the people. And he also knows his role um, as king, you know, as the Can I interrupt you to ask you a question? Yes. Why do you think, why why did you think Henry V was a good king? Was it because of the way he's presented in the play and the way he's always been presented in history? Or is there something else inherent about the, the character that you think makes him? I think he lacks the flaws that have defined every other king okay. in that we've seen thus far and yeah. all through Henry the sixth on through Richard the third to Henry the fourth to Richard the second, you know, yeah, like yeah. all of these Kings had some terrible flaw where they, they were either Am- bad people. Or... Yeah. Yeah. Bad people or bad Kings sure, or sure. more often both. Yeah. Um, and Henry doesn't have any of those. Hal is, Hal is essentially a good guy who, when he needs to become a good King can turn on that switch. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So, um, sorry, I just, it, you've said that a lot before and I think it is the prevailing thought that yeah. Henry V was kind of the greatest king that ever sat well, on the throne. And, and it's, it's always interesting to think like how much of that is historical thinking versus Shakespeare's yeah, thinking that, versus that, okay, and the popular imagination because of Shakespeare, right? Like there's all these things. That's what I was things. trying to get at. Cause I'm like, I don't really know. I can't tease it apart myself either. Like, yeah. Because so much of our history and every history book or documentary that I've watched has said that this is, that's the problem is that we're so focused on Shakespeare's presentation of Henry V that is that the man? I mean, is that the king? Exactly. Or or what, you know? Well, and I think it's, I mean, just on paper, what he did was pretty amazing. Uh, We watched, there's a, there's a short little video that they put out along with the King Netflix movie um, describing like the history and and the, the real accomplishments of Henry V. And they are quite something. I mean, he did basically conquer France, mm-hmm. you know, with a country that was, you know, almost a tenth of the population yeah. of France at the yeah. time, or like a fifth or something like that. Um, so it's, I mean, even just militarily to yeah. defeat a much larger power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Agincourt is obviously the big battle, but there were tons of other ones that he won as well, um, which aren't in the play. Uh, and it's, so it's really... Even just looking at it like that as a military leader, which is what 
in these late feudal times, they still that's were. That, that's yeah. what kings were. They were yeah. there to kill people and and own land, I guess, you know, yes. like Stuart, Stuart Griffin. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, so like, I think you can look at that and say, yeah, he was a great king for his time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, <laughs> you know, then there's also this, this other theme underneath for Shakespeare of what makes a good king, which is uh, loyalty to his subjects and care for them and the ability to balance competing uh voices in courts and have your own vision for what right. what is good and and to achieve that um and shakespeare obviously paints henry v as being in yeah. my mind the best at, of all yeah I think, yeah, yeah exactly across the way and, and um takes great pains to show that throughout mm-hmm. the three plays that hal um, is in is yeah. in yeah right yeah um so yeah okay i guess that that i'm sorry i interrupted you and and yeah. threw you off your game here maybe no. a bit no, no. you came right no, back came okay right good back. um you stuff it that, back was great, eyes, that was a great that was a great segue then for the so because you you have it in our notes that you want to talk about what makes it is what are there things that make a good king that also make him a good friend yeah and i think that's maybe more of a concern for um parts one and two henry the fourth because, because here, he wasn't king. He wasn't king yet. And and the friend aspect of, of him just being a person, mm-hmm. a person first, was much more at the fore. Whereas here, we do get that rare insight into um, a king, like the king's past, I guess, because mm-hmm. Bardolph and Pistol and uh, Nim, Nim are, are all present. There's a, you know, Mistress Quickly shows up in the first act. And, yeah. Falstaff is there off screen dying of a broken heart ostensibly because of what Hal did to him in part two. But um, we we get that rare glimpse of who he was. And because you've read those first two plays, you know what he's been through. Mm -hmm. Um, It colors what we see. And so the scenes where um, Bardolph is accused of stealing and is executed um, and the king agrees with this because he can't make exceptions exceptions for so close i'm so close speaking english (laughs) yes um he can't make exceptions for his friends that makes him a bad friend but it makes him a good king maybe or is that maybe a, a sign of you know too much of a black and white thinking that muddies because there are other areas other times when yeah. he's well, I mean, sitting in much more of a gray area and and that gives well, him a humanity I, that leads him to better governance I, I think he does struggle with it and i think he's in henry the fifth he's more open to the struggle when it's about kingly things and i think the the biggest example of that is the whole salic law scene yeah um which is cut from almost every production or shortened mm-hmm. in in the hollow crown um, I don't even think it was there at all. Uh, in this one, it's in uh, Kenneth Brown's version. It was much, much cut down. It's in like the King. In, in interestingly, yeah. they have uh, Timothy Chalamet plays um, Henry V, yeah. and he's like telling his archbishop, "He's like, I don't follow your argument." <laughs> yeah, what which are you is, talking which about? Which is exactly how most people feel when they're reading it. They're like, "I don't get it. What are yeah. you talking about here?" Right? And, and it is. It's like as it's written, it's a super confusing s- scene. But I think it's there because. Henry the King needs a black or white response. And it's the same when he's going into the later parts, uh, mm-hmm. when he's going to his soldiers and asking them how they feel about the king and the war and their souls and all these other things. The king needs a black or white answer. He needs to be right. Yeah. He needs to be good. He or at can't, least he, he needs to know what the wrong answer is so that he maybe yeah, doesn't know exactly it. what the right answer yes. is, but he can avoid the bad thing. And, and, and that's something that... Uh, 
you didn't see with Hal, the, yeah. the prince, Prince Hal was not concerned with black and white. He was no. there for the good time and to ex- experience kind of like the full range of being a good guy and then being a bad guy with Falstaff and, yeah. and having a laugh, but then being serious. Like he, he was much more open. And I think, uh, you know, he, the, the Salic law scene really solidifies that Hal's not going to do anything if it's not, um, if it's not under the eyes of God a positive thing right? right like and it's the same with the night before the battle he when he's praying for uh saying i've you know i've uh, appeased richard's yeah. yeah like richard's death richard ii's death has been appeased i've i've paid all these monks to pray for me every time and all this yeah. stuff no pray for him pray for him yes yeah <laughs> exactly so like this is a it's a different it's a different how that we see here i think right. um and i think that's i think he he is more focused on being the king of the law where there is no black and white or where there is no gray sorry. yeah yeah where it is only black and white yeah does um, that does that make jive with your kind of reading of it kind of and i think it's kind of what the what the play sets up because the first the opening scene is really these courtiers talking or, yeah. or maybe it's it's bishops or something yeah yeah talking about this king that like used to be a crazy man king or prince hal yeah. and how has become king and and how do they reconcile the two? And and it doesn't seem like Shakespeare has a real problem with that on the surface. That it's just now he's king. So that's the difference is that he's not going to waffle. He's going to make a decision and it's going to be the decision on the side of good. Mm-hmm. Um, which maybe flies in the face of some of the things he says before the the walls of Harfleur when he's yeah. threatening to throw babies onto spits and yeah. dash old men's heads against the wall. But I mean, <laughs> plug the walls holes in the wall with the dead bodies of his comrades. Like it's it's a very vicious, violent thing. Not necessarily, but it's not a done. Good thing. It's not done. But the fact yeah. that he says it, well, he threatens it so yeah. that he doesn't have to do it. Right. I, I mean, guess, that's I like guess. there's still a way to spin it. Yeah. Um, For sure. And, and it is. It's it's such an interesting uh, kind of take on on what what makes a a good king here is that part of it is this um this ability to uh fight fair as well like he really does have a big emphasis on like when he has to hang bart off it's because he stole from the the town and he he said we're not we're not doing that it's uh, we're gonna be the good guys here and and not punish the the villagers and what have you um which is then at odds though with the prisoners at the end of the yeah. after Agincourt so there's it's it's a confusing mess I'd say a little bit yeah and I guess that's that that might be why I asked why we think Henry is such a good king because he does do a lot of not nice things that yeah. they don't jibe with what we think a good person would do yeah but he does seem to be a good king and maybe that's that's the thing um we we just we've been watching the West Wing and there's <laughs> an episode um I can't remember the name of the episode, but with the priest, the one with the priest, where yeah. he had the priest asks Bartlett if he wants to take be the Sabbath Jed. day. Yeah, take yeah. the Sabbath day. Yeah. If he wants to be referred to as Jed or Mister President, and he's like in this room when I'm making these bad decisions, it's easier for me to be the office than to be the man. Yeah. And I think that's the case with Henry V. I think that might be the mm-hmm. closest analogy that I can think of. Is yeah. is like you're making horrible decisions to execute your friend or um, take uh, going against the laws of the time, which, mm-hmm. you know, executing prisoners of war was not something even back then that was acceptable, but that's what you're going to do to assert dominance and, and whatever. Yeah. Um, 
that is easier to do if you are the 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 office of the king, I guess, or the mm-hmm. in the person of the king rather than Prince Hal. Yes, right. He is Henry V. Yeah, not Hal, not Harry, not yeah. You know, he's yeah. he is the king. Yeah, and that maybe is the difference, right? And there there has to be a difference. Maybe you can't be both, but I think one does inform the other. And I think, yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the the Salic law thing is interesting because um, they're trying to justify Henry's claim to the French throne, and he has a shit claim to the English throne yeah. that he's sitting on, which yeah. I think is hilarious that yeah. they're trying to justify this through some kind of um, archaic... And, and like, well, it's only the, the lands of Francia that that have to abide by the Salic law. It's like, well, your father usurped the throne from yeah. another, a rightfully anointed king. So yeah. let's 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 yeah. talk business, right? Well, and it's, it's kind of funny because uh, it's such a medieval consideration of, like, requiring a claim to the throne. I don't know. It's, it's, because it's like, it's so obviously just a power grab, right? Like, yeah. I want France. I think I can take it. I'm going to take it, right? Um, and obviously, in Shakespeare's time, through to Henry V's time, obviously there would have been a lot of um, a lot of words said, I guess, to try and justify that. And that's yeah. and that's really all that that scene is, and that's all that the that the the purpose of the entire uh, production before they go to war is is about is that Hal has to go take the 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 crown of uh, France. Um, but it's it's so wedged in there, and it it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like he actually cares. Uh, well, I think Hal does care. I think Shakespeare makes him care. But us as the audience can it's so transparently just a power grab that it's really hard to kind of like. Um, I can see again. It's why that scene is cut so often is because you're like, yeah, okay, he's just he needs a reason to go to war. It doesn't need to be six pages long and last you know twelve minutes. It mm-hmm. can be the the archbishop saying, yeah, totally. Salic law doesn't happen in France, so you can inherit through your mother. That's all it needs to be, and that's all it is in a lot of productions. But I think of the that. anxiety about it is is what is important, and, and that's, that's what's in because Shakespeare. Yeah. yeah, because that's the anxiety that that. Henry the Fourth had about his claim to the yeah. throne and what he passed on to his son, and what Henry the Sixth is going to feel, um, and why he ends up being such a terrible king, and why there's so much turmoil leading from that all the way through to the, you know, late 1400s. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's that anxiety about who deserves the throne, who mm-hmm. deserves to be king, yeah. and. And you can code it however you want. You can say, well, there's this ancient law that doesn't apply here because of whatever, yeah. this X factor that we've now defined. Um, but the, the point of that is that you're, you're, it's bringing to the forefront the idea that, I think anyway, that it's um, there maybe is no legitimate claim to any throne, yeah. almost. Yeah. Which is kind of subversive for Shakespeare to be saying that. Yeah. But it does seem like that's well, what yeah, is it's, being It's like they're up. so obsessed with uh, legitimacy that it exposes the illegitimacy <clears throat> exactly. of everybody around them, exactly. right? Yeah, yeah. So I think that that does play a really a really interesting thematic and literary role, the Salic Law scene, mm. and, and I don't like that it's cut because I think it is... And the, a central underpinning for yeah for not just this play but all of the history plays well and for Hal's character it's it's kind of important that he does fret about it so much um yeah i feel i don't know 
There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in our philosophy. You'd already kind of brought it up, Linz, uh, talking about warfare. Yeah. Uh, this is obviously a play uh, that is mostly about warfare. Uh, yeah. Most of it is on the march, them outside Harfleur, once more into the breach, them at Agincourt, uh, you know, St. Crispin's Day. Uh, and there's a really good question there about um, whether or not it glorifies that warfare um, or if it kind of condemns it. Um, and I think this is really one of those things that, that falls under the umbrella of it's up to the director. Really. Yeah. Like it really can depend. I think, um, the hollow crown was kind of on the, the, the edge between those two extremes. Yeah. Um, Brana's very much in a kind of like post, uh, Vietnam war. War is always terrible and dark and gross and messy. Uh, his Agincourt scene, like the, the scene at the end of the battle, which is like t- 10 or 12 or 15 billion minutes long, where he's just <laughs> carrying Christian Bale over his shoulder the whole mm. time. Like it's a very like anti-war epic kind of um, yeah. approach. Yeah. And I think you can do both in, in the play. Sure. Um, but I, I, I can't help but recognize that as as Shakespeare wrote it, the words are very pro-war. Well, and that that reflects the time that they were in too, right? This Mm -hmm. is, you know, um, Gloriana, you know, winning all these amazing, you know, battles against foreign enemies and subduing them all. And and like, it's it's very pro-England, very pro-monarchy, very pro-war. Yeah. Um, but that, well, that's why Olivier did it in 44, sure, right? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. you have whatever time, this is why, so when we, before we, we recorded this, I asked Aiden, like, what would be a modern, you know, a modern adaptation of Henry V in this post sort of Brexit world, right? Yeah. How would they choose to portray? And I think it would fall personally more close to the, the Olivier glorification yeah. of, but it would depend on the director whose yeah. hands it falls in because yeah. um, Brana is doing it post Falklands and, and yeah. you know, that was a resounding embarrassment. Right? Well, I mean, they won, but at a huge yeah, cost. Yeah, I mean, it, was, it yeah, was not it was a like, glor- glorified. No, it was not war. a glorious, glorious war. war? Thank yeah, you. I yeah. really am having trouble. Yeah, with words are hard today. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it really does depend on the director, and I guess the Hollow Crown does it in a way that is pro-Britain, but in a in a this is what we could be again kind of thing, yeah, but not in a way sense. that like we want you all to vote leave like that like it's not it's not that kind of pro-britain yeah you know in the brexit terms yeah um the the king is i don't know that maybe is a different kind of thing it's, it's so american it's yeah it's a little harder to but i mean to judge. It, but know, yeah on yeah. the surface the words really do glorify it you know mm-hmm. you can't read the the siege of harfleur or the battle of agincourt st christmas day speech as anything but a justification for English supremacy and the 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 glory of what it is that they're undertaking. I mean, Henry spends most of Act what is Act Four, right? Yeah, he spends most of Act Four um, justifying to himself that this is the right thing for his men to do because, and then tells them so that that this is going to be the unifying thing. We're, we're a band of brothers now. We are all England. We are England. Mm-hmm. Like, this is... And we are going to subdue the French because we are... This is this is our moment. This mm-hmm. is what we do, and, and we're going to be brilliant at it. And it's like... Um, 
it, it does seem like he's talking himself into it at times because he's not convinced. And this was historically true that the French vastly outnumbered the English mm-hmm. um, at the Battle of Agincourt. So, um, you know, just in terms of logistics, it didn't seem like they were going to win. So, of course, he's going to be, you know, worried about the souls of his men. But, yeah. um, but yeah, so this is this is very much a, a uh, pro-war text yes yes but the fact that you can pull an anti-war message out of it is is kind of interesting i think you could probably do that with most war stories you could you could focus on the terrible aspects of war as opposed to the well yeah i mean all you need is is an ironic lens to view any great speech from any battle scene you could read anything as as the opposite of what yeah you know you could read In Flanders Fields, ironically, and it would be an a anti-war, pro-war. pro-war. It is an anti-war, <laughs> yeah. a pro-war thing. But you can, like, that's the yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you know, people do hold that up, and they say, we need to support our troops because yeah. look at what John McCrae wrote. And it's like, no, you're missing the point. So, I mean, it, this is the thing. Like, depending on whose hands mm, yeah. the text ends up in, it does, it can be warped and, and twisted to subvert the original meaning. And in this case, I don't think it's, I'm not saying perversion because it's a bad thing. I'm saying that it's it's just the whims of the time, right? And and that's um, depending on when it's made and, and the sensibilities of the person behind the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, it does, it, it, it can have a different meaning. That's true with anything. Yeah, for sure. And I think the fact that you've had it with patriotism already yeah. is, is very clear in the text as well um you, you made a really good point there that there's uh in our notes that there are, there are four captains yes. described and there's an english a welsh an a irish. scottish and an irish yeah. captain um and it's really kind of like this proto great britain yeah. um kind of story being told even though the the only captain that really gets uh made into a somewhat interesting character is Flewell, the yeah. welshman which is yeah. uh because Harry at least considers himself Welsh. Yeah, um, he yeah. describes himself as such in the in the play. But it is it is an interesting thing to have that play out. I mean, we've seen Shakespeare play around with Welsh and Scottish mm-hmm. language and characters, um, trying to write the accents as in Mary Wise of Windsor. Yeah. Um, but it's never like this is very much a deliberate move that maybe some people it just goes over their heads i don't think they realize it because yeah. we're so we live in a time when great britain exists yeah um and the united kingdom wasn't a thing like that yeah. wasn't there wasn't a, a united well yeah james the first hadn't united the thrones of england exactly. and scotland yeah, yeah so, so this was not something that that was ever considered so yeah and that's even at the time that shakespeare was writing this that would have been unusual but yeah. they're all united against france and that's the important thing. well and it's interesting though because another thing that's always always cut i've never even seen it until i was reading it again this time i forgot it even existed but there's a there's a big discussion before they go to war in france about what they're going to do about scotland and it again yeah. takes up like a whole page and <clears throat> there's a bunch of like back and forth and, and discussion about like well you gotta you know you gotta keep scotland at bay or else they're going to stab you in the back while you're stabbing yeah, yeah, yeah you know while you're fighting france in the front um and at one point they they i think you if I read it correctly, they decide they're going to devote only one quarter of yes. their forces to fighting in France. And yeah. that's why there's only a couple thousand yes. of them in Agincourt. Um, Scotland and, was the biggest threat. Scotland, yeah, Scotland's <laughs> a threat at home and you can't yeah. leave your back uh, unguarded. Um, but then, yeah, they have uh, a Scottish captain and they have um, this kind of larger 
um, Albion type yes. view of of the the British Isles yeah. as fighting against mainland Europe. Again, I think it would go very well with Brexit oh, <laughs> language, yeah. you know, yeah. for sure. So like it's it's uh, it's interesting that that's kind of like the the us versus them is kind of mentioned towards Scotland as being a them, but then they're included in the us. Yeah. And then the only them for the most of the play is the French who yeah. are just like ridiculed and, and made fairly ridiculous. Yes. I think they're there for comic relief in almost every single scene that they're in. Well, certainly Princess Catherine is. Yes. Um, she's a separate, I think, a separate entity of yeah. herself. But yeah. most of the, the performances, I mean, I'm thinking of Robert Pattinson as the Dauphin in, in um, Netflix's yeah. version. Um, he is patently ridiculous, yeah. right? And and it's, the French are almost always portrayed that way um, in in English, in English, <laughs> early modern yeah. uh, literature, just because of the sentiment at the time. Yeah. Um, the other thing that was interesting about the way that the English and French are portrayed is in relation to how they react to the battle itself. And this was something that we didn't talk about, that, but I wanted to bring it up, Aiden, because mm. um, we have this great scene of of Henry talking to his soldiers um, the night before the battle and discussing with. I think his name is Williams. Yeah. Um, about the role that the king has in um, accepting or refusing to take on the blame of mm-hmm. having his soldiers die, and is this a justified thing? Like, can a, can a king put people in this position yeah. only to see them slaughtered? Should he accept blame for that? Yeah. And Henry doesn't think so. Henry thinks that it's not his fault if if his men die. Yeah. Um, and their souls are their own. Their souls are their own concern. Yeah. Uh, but he still goes out the next morning. And I don't know if the conversation with Williams changes him or if the Elysium speech changes him or if he has some kind of epiphany while yeah. he sleeps for the hour that he sleeps, yeah. I'm sure, before a battle of this size. Because he comes out in front of the men and he says, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. We will die on battle together, in battle together today. And people will sing our names forevermore as equals we are yeah. equals yeah um and he even calls certain people out i mean they're mostly named characters so they're they're nobles but yeah. i mean there are people in this crowd who are not because we've seen pistol and bardolf and yeah. nim um so we know that this is a this is a, a cross-section of england so mm-hmm. there are poor people and rich people alike in this crowd and they are all being told that they are a band of brothers whether or not henry actually believes that or whether he's just telling it to rally the troops is left up to but i think most people play it as henry is actually believing that they are mm-hmm. equals. the french on the other hand come in after the battle has been won uh, by the english yeah and they come in to account for their dead and and the french the, their only concern is getting their princes off the field so that they aren't steeped in the blood of the yeah. lower classes yeah. because it would muddy their their memories i yeah. guess yeah. it's a very different sensibility and i think that is um that maybe goes over other people they, they may not pick that up yeah. but at the time i think it it really would be picked up on that the english even though their their class was very stratified and, you know, there were sumptuary laws that permitted what you could wear and what colors yep. you could wear, that, that's something that is still very pre- prevalent in England today with the class warfare that happens there. But it's something different from the way that the French approach yes. class. Yes. And I don't know what to make of that. Is that just another way to paint the French as barbarians or to paint the French nobility as... 
Like, is it is it to rally the 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 groundlings to think? Well, our king would would not yeah, is looking sacrifice after, yeah, us, yeah. right? Yeah, I think I think it is kind of there to again highlight Hal's position as a good king. Mm-hmm. I'd say is that yeah, he's he does care about again his the men under his command and mm-hmm. uh, his subjects. Whereas yeah, the French don't give a shit about any of them. Um, yeah, they don't even pretend to. No, exactly, and I I think it's. I think the fact that it's in this play is actually quite kind of telling of, of kind of like the, the more egalitarian tone that the politics in uh, England took, like that they, they, they devolved, you know, they had the parliament, like they had the, the great uprising and, you know, yeah, 50 20 years later. Well, yeah, not even, <laughs> it was this. like 30 years after this play is oh, published. Yes. Right. So like they, you know, they have a huge shift in attitudes about, um, who who should have power whereas the french you know they go uh, like that same way yeah years. it's like it's literally like the sun king times you yeah. know like literally uh the entire power is vested in one individual they go mm-hmm. the the other path towards absolutism um and then you know that that kind of filters down <laughs> throughout the ages to today and it's i think it's the fact that it's in this play is both uh indicative of a spirit that was probably around at Shakespeare's time, which is that the king is beholden to his subjects and should care, or the queen in in Shakespeare's case this time. Um, And that uh, it's something that because Shakespeare wrote it down and because it's been expressed in this, this kind of positive way um, it's, it's actually been filtered down as well as, as kind of like a a dream maybe of, you know, the, the ideal where you, you're, you're, the best person amongst us is the king <clears throat> sure. and he's looking after us and he views us as in some way, shape or form an equal. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy a little bit there, right? Yeah. That's kind of an interesting way of thinking about it. I hadn't really put that together that, yeah, you're, you're literally at the time this was written 50 years away from Cromwell and the, yeah. the civil war, yeah. um, which saw them kill a king. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, you're really, um, <laughs> Yeah, it, it 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 does seem like it's expressing something that may have already been there. Well, certainly it had been there from the peasants' revolt in 13. Yeah. Well, and it's not like the French didn't 80s. have peasant uprisings no, and stuff too, but it was the fact that it's um it's seized upon here yeah. as a positive. It's un- undoubtedly, you know, this is St. Crispin's Day speech is the, you know, mm-hmm. one of the pinnacles of English oratory for yeah. English patriotism. And it, it does have this 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 uh, unifying message, yeah. yeah. And maybe it is just on the battlefield, and you know, it is. Well, just... and that's that's the thing. Like Henry did give a great speech the day before the, the day they they went into battle. It's mm-hmm. not been recorded for posterity. It's not like there were newsreel cameras that could <laughs> capture it. But it's it's something that we come to expect of great military leaders before they go to their defining battles i'm sure before normandy there were yeah yeah great speeches that were made on those ships and um so it's it's just interesting that even in the 1590s you had um this if you were going to make up a great speech yeah for a king to to say that this is the tone it takes i think that is that is interesting and whether or not it 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 expresses or um, reveals a truth about henry v is maybe less important than the truth it reveals about early modern renaissance english society yeah and let's go there next because you you also had a a section in our notes about class society yeah and and how those those are talked about here and um 
you know, you, your question here is like, um, we know that the common soldiers will never be on equal footing with the king. Um, so is, is it a real, is it, is it a real sentiment mm-hmm. that, that he's expressing here or is it, you know, leveraging for, for the good of the, the army itself? Yeah. So I think, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's tough to, it's tough to kind of come to a definitive answer of that within the context of the text itself. Again, I think it's really kind of up to the director. Like you could do something like, um, what they did with, uh, uh, Ben de Cumberbatch and Richard the Third right. uh, in the Hollow Crown season two, where he like he has this kind of great speech, and then a lot of it is just the joke when he goes behind the curtain, and and yeah. they're 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 kind of playing it up that way. Yeah. You could kind of do a similar thing with Henry the Fifth here. Right. It'd be a little harder because there's no there's no textual clues, but you could have him be like, oh yeah, okay, I guess it's time to rally the troops, and he just like pulls it out of his hat, kind of thing. Right. It would undermine, I think, the character that we come. Yeah, expect. yeah, yeah. I think that's um, true. But, I think it would change a, the character fundamentally. Yeah. But I, I also think that you know, because we see Henry as not just a military leader and king, but we see him as um, connected somehow with his past life, which is the great success of Henry V. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that also has to come to bear on on the way that he acts. We can't just yeah. ignore the fact that. Um, he did have allegiances that lay outside of the traditional class structure that he would have grown up in. Yeah. He, he was friends with these lowly characters who play important roles in this, yeah. the, the goings on of, of Henry V. Yeah. So they're there. If, if those characters had been excised completely, if there was no Bardolph and Pistol quickly in this play at all, mm-hmm then I would say you could be as craven as you want with Henry V. But because they're there, it's like a reminder that, you know, you could float off to the heights of great oratory, but you're always going to have your foot tethered to Eastcheap, you know? And there's always, you can't fake it, right? That's why why I do tend to think that Henry does kind of believe that, that they are equal because that's, he's always believed that yeah even when he was prince hal you know wallowing in east cheap he was it didn't matter so much that he was going to be that he was the prince of wales yeah you know and now that he's king yes he has all this extra responsibility and burden on his shoulders but it's not um that's not all he is yeah and And the presence of those east cheap gang yeah. kind of underscores that yeah and that, that you forget it definitely and i think that was that was one of the questions i had written down was like why why did shakespeare include these characters because they really contrary to your point Lindsay, i don't think they play any well, important no, they, role in the battle well i'm saying or in i'm the creating larger... the important role by saying that they're that they're underpinning this but i think the bardolph scene is important it does yes. show something about him yes and the fact that they talk about falstaff and and how cruel hal was mm-hmm. um but they still go to fight for him. For him, yeah. Because he's their king and he's commanded of them, but yeah. there's also a lingering um, uh, comradeship there. Yeah. And then Hal comes back, Henry comes back and says, yeah, you know, we are a band of brothers. Yeah. A day after he killed Bardolph. Bardolph yeah. But I mean, it's it's that that give and take. It's It makes it a little bit more um, ambiguous. Yeah. And I think that's an important role for them to play. Yeah, I no, I, I agree, and I think I, I think even maybe not ambiguous. It's it is tying back that that humanity that you know Hal yeah, has yeah. as Hal in in yeah. parts one and two, um, and here 
you you don't get much of that or you get it filtered through him his discussions with the the soldiers the night before Agincourt right. or his discussions with the archbishop or whoever right like it's it's kind of like there's there's this how that we know that is just buried under the robes yeah. and the crown and yeah. all these other elements and he can't shake them off but you know that there's still something of the original Hal in there. Um, well, does yeah. he even want to shake them off? I think maybe part of him does, but I think he can. And that's, no, that's yeah, part of yeah. the beauty of it. It's like, you know, Elizabeth II was a, a in the war, like that shaped who she was mm-hmm. when she served in the war. It's part of who she is now. Mm-hmm. It's not something that you can just get rid of because you've taken on some fancy titles, yeah. right? Yeah. That gumption that, that Hal had um, early on is still there, and it's probably what leads him to think, I'm going to fight the French with two and a half times my numbers, mm-hmm. and I'm going to win. Yeah. Even if that maybe he, he isn't entirely sure he's going to win, yeah. there's, there's a little bit of that in him. Yeah. And it's what I think Shakespeare leaves that there because he's he is trying to say this is what makes a good king. I like it. Yeah. I knew you would. We few. We happy few. We band of brothers. So, Aiden, can we talk about gender? Yes. Let, let's start, though. With masculinity. I think okay. we're going to come back to Catherine. That's who I, that's the who I definitely want to talk about for sure. We'll come but. back to there. But I think I think the play has, because um, it is so male driven, there's there's no female characters at all except for Catherine. Right. Um, it, it is very concerned with the most masculine pursuit, warfare. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's kind of, in that way, it's, it's kind of a... And the whole brotherhood speech is kind of the the crux of of the matter for that. It's it's um, what makes men come together, uh, an opponent. <laughs> you know, sure. it's 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 what brings the Irish and the Scottish and the Welsh yeah. and the the English all together, right? It's it's the fact that there is um, a them a them over there that they need to fight, mm-hmm. and it's it's so tribalistic and very kind of like it is old school masculinity in a nutshell. Um, but it 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 is also the the source of love. It's it's kind of what brings. Um, well, it's not what brings Pistol and and Nim. Were they the ones fighting yes. at the start over the there was a debt or something? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think it's Bardoff who keeps stepping in and be like, no, no, we have the French to fight. Don't don't do this, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, and that's kind of it, it's kind of the great leveler is is to have uh, a shared an, enemy. An opponent. Yeah, not not so much anything to do with each other because men can't communicate. Or uh, have feelings towards each other, apparently. Uh, unless there's someone to hate together. Sure. They, they can bond over that. It's why, you know, men and and sports teams, you know. I was just, just going like, to say, we, you watch Fleabag, and it, it's Emma Thompson, isn't it? Isn't that the character? Isn't she the actress who plays the role of the person? I'm Maybe I'm mixing that up. Who comes in and says that men had to invent things to feel pain. <laughs> Yes. Right? Yes. Was that Emma Thompson? I don't think so. Maybe I, it wasn't I, Emma Thompson. Are you sure it was from Fleabag? Yes, it was from Fleabag. <laughs> it was absolutely in Fleabag. Okay. And it's like this great speech where it's like um, that men had to invent sports. They had to invent rugby and football and yeah. to beat each other up to, so that they would feel things. But women had that pain. Every month we feel that pain. It's in us. <laughs> yeah. And we don't have to seek it out with other people, where, yeah. whereas men do. And that is kind of... I think that's that's a brilliant truth if you want to look at it that way. Yeah. Um, that that 
underscores what it means to go to war, Mm -hmm. what it means to have an enemy, why the military industrial complex succeeds, right? Why we, you know, we paint, we always have an opponent and you're, you're unified when you have an opponent. And so, um, it's, it is so tied up in, in gender. Yeah. Even to the point where like, there are lots of references to rape and pillaging and that kind of yeah. thing. And, and, well, and that's the, the language of warfare and the language of sexual violence are very much conflated. Yeah. Not just in this play, but in a lot of other oh, yeah. contexts. For sure. And so that in itself is, is well, and it's, it's interesting, interesting and problematic. Yeah. Well, and the fact that it, it comes out of Henry's mouth in yeah. particular, because he, uh, I'm thinking now of Catherine at the end, he describes himself how many times, like two or three times as I'm a soldier. Yes. I, I'm not. I'm not a lover. I'm not. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a wooer. I can't really do. I can't speak this I can't language. Speak, yeah, I can't speak <laughs> French, and I can't. I can't speak the language of love either. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's it's interesting that he is like the lead man. He's he's the man's man. He's the alpha. Yeah. Literally, he just conquered a whole country by yeah. himself. Essentially, is how the play comes across. And then he's he's thrust into this to this opposite role and i think this is also what makes him in the eyes of shakespeare a good king is the fact that he can go from warfare Mm -hmm. to wooing uh relatively smoothly and relatively successfully and he's he's funny and charming and he 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 crosses a language barrier to you know he literally just kicked this woman's father's ass in a war and now he's he's cracking wise and and making her because he's conquered her she's france exactly yeah but he still wants her consent. It's it is it's it's a shift away from the warfare of everything else. It's uh, like yeah, we, we were okay. watching a video today about uh, all the Brenna uh, yeah. movies and uh, the, this this guy on YouTube. He's he's really funny and he has uh, he did he did a really bunch of good reviews on them. The brows held high. I think yeah, is yeah, the, is the, ch- the channel, channel title. We'll we'll link to the video. Mm-hmm. Um, but he he didn't like he doesn't like the ending of that play. I think it's great because it's. It is the war is wrapped up. The war is over. All this conflict is done. Um, what you what's what? Yeah, what's next? <laughs> it's it's what what is what is what was it for? There, there has to be a purpose for it, and it, and it is the union of uh, England and France in love. It's it's yeah. it's reconciling. It's it's after the war is over. You need to have somewhere to go, and you need to create something new out of this conquering that you've done Mm -hmm. if you don't do that you're just pillaging and raping and destroying and that was never henry's like i don't think that would be consistent with him his ethos his ethos and shakespeare's understanding of the character he needed to have something to aim for uh it's the same as when he challenged uh uh hotspur to single combat it's it's not that he wants to go kill all these people uh, he wants he wants, he wants to avoid of, deaths as much yeah. as possible. It's 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 kind of a very noble understanding of war sure, sure. versus what the play has actually been showing us, which is the brutality and and. Uh, I guess I just have trouble squaring it with his decision to kill the prisoners of war, the French prisoners yeah. of war, which doesn't seem like a like a very Henry I, thing to do. I feel like first of all, was that mentioned in the the Brana version? I I couldn't. I was watching for it. And I don't yeah, remember. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was okay. just a, it's it's not a prominent line it's not a prominent yeah. part so well just someone else is just mentioning it but it's because I, I feel like that's a historical reality that shakespeare kind of well, felt obligated yeah. to like you can't ignore the fact that he killed a bunch yeah. of prisoners um but it doesn't jive with his character very well i mean yeah. like i think the brana one is good because he's really like after the battle's over he's 
like scared shitless. He has no idea what's going on, really. He's, well, he's he doesn't seen, even know if the day is. Yeah, there. Like, that's, yeah. That's a line, and they really right? sell it. It's like yeah. in that. Whereas the uh, the Hollow Crown was was a little less convincing that way. Mm-hmm. But this one, there's just so much chaos and everything that Brana really you feel like he doesn't know what's happening. Well, and that was the truth of Vagincourt too. Yeah, so I, yeah, I think there is. You're right that there is some. Um, some greater historical facts that Shakespeare feels he couldn't overlook, overlook or yeah. shy away from. Yeah. Um, um, but trying to square that with, with the character that he's built makes it difficult. Yeah. And, and, and I guess I like the brows held high video explained. Mm. I also felt like the ending kind of misses something, but I see what you're saying now and I'm maybe reconsidering it because if, if this is the, the ends goal of any battle is to I mean that's how you hold on to the the kingdoms that yeah. you conquered is not through I mean you can <laughs> Machiavelli would tell you that you could yeah. you know just hold on to it through brute force and cruelty but um is it better to be loved or feared right yes, and yes. I think that Henry would say it's better to be loved so yeah. he makes a, a go of it and succeeds with Catherine um so so it's it's kind of the wooing after like the night after yeah. or the morning after yeah. the night before. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where it's like, I've, I've, I've ruined your father's military. You know, I've been installed as his heir. Yeah. Um, the tables have turned, yeah. but the damage is done. And I'm, I'm asking now for your permission to keep this going. Yeah. That kind of fits. Yeah. It is a bit of a jarring tonal shift when you read oh, absolutely. it and when you watch yeah. it to have this cutesy scene. And it is it is cute, like, you know, to see them try and communicate yeah. in a language that neither one of them Speak. speaks. Yeah. Like she doesn't yeah. speak English, he doesn't speak French. Yeah. Um which I find hard to believe that Oh he would have definitely he spoke would have spoken French. French. Yeah, for sure. So it's really <laughs> just a, a comedic trope. Yeah. yeah. Um so to to have that play out is is a little jarring, but it's cute. Yeah, it is, and I think I think getting back to her character, such as it is, um, she's she's very. I mean, the whole the only times we see her is is her learning to speak English, yes, and then speaking English poorly. Yeah. Um, I think her character, again, it is mostly as the flower of France. It's the mm-hmm. prize to be claimed, um, but I think. Uh, there's something there, and I think it really works with Brana and Thompson because uh, you just know that they have this kind of like spark between them when mm-hmm. they when they do meet and they do have this interaction. I feel like she it's kind of hinted at, and I it's not a great character, obviously, right. um, but the idea that she's interested in English at all that yeah. she that she has there's this part of her that wants to learn the body parts especially the yes. fact that it is you know and some of the body parts are naughty words in French right like like this is this is her being titillated by the idea of how yeah. you know it's it's yeah. it's it, there is a bit of a, a construction there of her as waiting for him um it's obviously very english propaganda sure it's and it's very shakespearean yeah it's body shakespearean yes humor, yes which is you know as divorced from reality in this case <laughs> as any other historical construction that he's built in his plays yeah um we have no idea if catherine de valois was you know, yeah. really sitting a few nights before the invasion, <laughs> you know, laughing at the the word for foot, like, foot and <laughs> gown, if those were really the things that yeah. she was giggling over with yeah. her nursemaid or whatever. But um, but it does have a, a kind of an innocence, but 
uh, salaciousness to it that yeah. is fun, that makes it fun. Like she, she, if you look at the French as comic characters, like she is the prime comic yeah. character then, yeah. Yeah. right? And it is just comic relief. And her meeting Henry at the end and agreeing to marry him is just the the culmination of that. Yeah, right, definitely. Parting such sweet sorrow that I shall say goodnight till it be morrow. Um, so coming back to the chorus again, um, maybe to wrap things up a bit. Um, anytime Shakespeare has a prologue or a chorus, it really is, um, it feels like Shakespeare the dramatist commenting on the nature of the theater, mm-hmm. the nature of drama. Yep. And that is something that um, I think is um, really interesting and fascinating about Shakespeare as a writer mm-hmm. that we have this meta commentary like in the chorus I I do think that it undermines the strength of any filmed production that includes the chorus yeah because I, disagree, but... I know you disagree <laughs> but just in watching the Brana version where Derek Jacoby delivers the chorus lines as though he's a modern yeah day, he's a 1989 guy yeah. wandering through the fields of France yeah. you know in his trench coat. Um, and it's not that I have a problem with the words themselves, but it's the the, the fact that Shakespeare is so um, self-deprecating and apologetic about the fact that he can only do so much with his words. You have to imagine that this is the field of Agincourt, that this is, you know, we're going into battle and, and these large armies are meeting. Yeah. Like, he recognizes the limitations of the stage and that's something that is a successful thing to do when you're performing it on stage. Yes. I, I have no problem with that. But it's just when... I, and I guess it's the difference in, in the way that drama has evolved. That, you know, Kenneth Branagh can go to a field and have 10,000 people extras on a field with horses. And they can make the Battle of Agincourt look realistic. Mm-hmm. You don't need to have a chorus apologize and say, oh, please forgive us. We can't depict the Battle of Agincourt anymore. Um, so it serves a purpose yeah. on the stage. And I think that's really fascinating that Shakespeare is, is doing that because it's, it's a recognition of how much power a writer has to paint a picture when that picture is being performed in front of 4,000 people or whatever mm-hmm. in the globe or the rose or whatever. Yeah. Um, it loses something at least the Henry V chorus. I don't think necessarily... Yeah. I think the chorus in Romeo and Juliet plays a different, yeah, it's role, different role. And other sure. choruses play different roles. But this one, because it is so apologetic, I, I it it was really jarring for me to see it included in the, the 1989 Brana adaptation. I, I will admit it started off that way for me, but I, I liked it for basically the same reason Shakespeare liked it I think is that <laughs> there's still I mean it just it's a thing about media any media is that you're it's a it's a representation of something it's a right? fabrication it's a fabrication it is right. it is a falsehood and I think being aware of it helped in Brana's version because mm-hmm. it's odd because he, he goes for such a realistic style in, in so many of the things like the lighting is very dark and, yeah. and realistic with flames and what have you uh, the mud and the disgustingness yeah. of the very battlefield very naturalistic I guess yeah. in a way um, but it's at the same time it, you you are aware you're watching a movie it's just it's just yeah. one of those things okay. where like I feel like it could go either way if he would have cut it I think it would have been fine um, 
but I like that it starts off on a set and it's like, yes, this yeah, is like a this, theater set. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and it's or like this. Steep. This is this is what Shakespeare. The, Shakespeare wanted to get across that mm. I'm aware that I can't show absolutely everything. You're not actually in Agincourt. There's an artifice we didn't, here. Yeah, and we're not actually in Agincourt either. We're there's also an artifice here in the film version. Yeah. Um, I think he did a pretty good job of coming close to like a real feel in a lot of the scenes, right. but um, there, there's still a gap between the two. So as an apologia to the audience, okay. I think it's fine. Um, I get it. But I, yeah, I agree. It, it, like if you <clears throat> cut it, it would have been it wouldn't have changed. The no, movie but okay, lot. I'm 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 hearing what you're saying, and I'm changing my mind maybe a little bit. But it's <laughs> it does feel like it yes. serves a purpose <laughs> beyond what. But then that I guess maybe leads to an, a different and more interesting question about the nature of theater generally, the yeah. nature of drama generally, not just for Shakespeare's audience, but for a modern audience. And is that which what an artist like Brana is is concerned with? Um, the artifice of yeah. of a film set. Yeah. And it's not the first time. There's another um, at the end of As You Like It, which we yes, haven't watched, we haven't watched but it. we watched the, the Brows Held High um, kind of commentary on it. Yeah. And at the end of that play, Bryce Dallas Howard's character, you know, wanders through the set and you see the cranes and you see, but she's in, you know, period dress. It's, it's in, in character still. In character. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's, um, it's not the first time that Brana, or not the only time I guess that Brana will will do that, like point to the artifice and yeah. and ask you question or ask you to question it, yeah. or or questioning it himself. Yeah. So in that way, there is there is a, I, I think Brana would like being compared to Shakespeare in that way. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, but that is an interesting an interesting thing to think about. Um, well, I think it's I think it is a concern of any artist working in yeah. a, a storytelling medium like recognizing the limitations of what you're able to do yeah with what you're doing and there's only so far a song can take you there's only yeah. so so there's only know, so many Leonard extras Cohen you can actually going to tell yeah. you that this is the fourth the fifth the minor fall <laughs> the major lift and you're going to comment on what you're doing yeah. in order to highlight what it is yeah and 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 point to it and say ah this is this is what we're doing yeah it's it's it's, it's a little meta it is a little meta. I don't mind it. I, I like it. I don't mind it either. I guess I guess I, I I don't mind it. There, I said it. Yes. I don't mind it. If this were ancient bickerings, you would win. I would win. But it's not. It's not ancient bickerings. If I long to stay, we shall begin our ancient bickerings. Speaking of ancient bickerings, uh <laughs> Linz, because we're wrapping up finally after a long torturous process the very first really? play we ever did yes. or no the second play we ever did was henry the sixth part one uh oh, which was, it was the third play was it the third we did one? two gentlemen and then we did shrew we did taming the shrew taming the shrew was second okay yeah. yes okay so but the first history one it was yes. very early on we've come a long way since then read a lot of plays uh we are going to wrap it up with um who's the most interesting character of all the kings that we've had in this time frame. But we'll exclude King John. So just from yeah. Richard II. Yeah, the Wars of the Roses king. Eras, yes. Richard II. Second to Richard III. Yes. Which one do you think is the most interesting character? I'll let you go first. I personally, and I've I've I thought this before. I think Richard the Third okay. is the most. Okay. Is that who you were gonna say? I, I was. It was. He was in my top two. That's because for sure. I just. I. I think that as a character, mm-hmm. he's the most compelling character. Mm-hmm. I don't like him. I enjoy watching him scheme. Yeah. Super evil. Um. 
And I think that he has the most, um, the most compelling reasons for the things that he does. Okay. Being slighted, being, um, misshapen and sent out before his time has given him a A chip on his shoulder, shoulder, which manifests as a hum. Um, but he's, he's just so bitter and twisted and I love that. Yeah. So I think he's, he's such a compelling character. I think Henry V is up there too. Yeah. Um, in terms of his character development and he certainly get the most screen time with him. Yeah. Um, but I also weirdly admire Henry the Sixth, yeah, for taking a principled stance about for trying to his be a, yeah kingship, yeah, you know where yeah. where it's kind of like you know, I wish I were just it very much like I guess his father said the night before um, Agincourt, like all of these peasants who sleep and they're able to sleep and they have no yeah. no problems. Yeah. You know, Henry VI takes it that that weird scene where he's watching fathers and sons, you know. And wanting to be a shepherd. Wanting yeah. to be a shepherd. I, I feel that. I get it. I'm like, yeah. I, I understand that that feeling and I, I, I admire him for wanting to um, explore that, I guess. Yeah. But I think in terms of just purely well-written, well-rounded characters, I personally like Henry, uh, Richard III. That's fair. I, I would say, I think Henry V, mm-hmm. on account of his, the fact that we've been talking about him so much, and the fact that he does get so much screen time, and we do see a, a distinct transformation, mm-hmm. is is probably the most interesting one. But I I am drawn back to more and more, the more we talk about him, Richard II. Interesting. Which okay. is because which is odd because I didn't care for the plays much when we first read it. But he's an interesting. He's figure. an interesting figure in that his flaws set in motion the whole chain of events oh, yeah. of everything that comes. Yeah. I think actually all the kings except for Edward the Fourth was not an interesting character in Shakespeare at all. Um, he was kind of ho hum, yeah. and he was only a king for like a short period of time in well, the plays. I mean, and then back, and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and everything. Yeah, it was it was messy, right? Um, so like Henry the Sixth is great, Henry the Fifth is great, um, Henry the Fourth is even kind of interesting in that he's not expecting to be king, and yeah. the the play doesn't grant him much, so maybe he's not super interesting too. But Richard the Second, um, it, it's kind of written in him, and the fact that he prognosticates everything, you know, yeah. it, like it's obviously very easy for Shakespeare to do to have done that, but it feels right for his character because he was the last anointed king. He was king. the last anointed king who should have inherited. Yeah. Um, in this story. Well, yeah. In, in yeah, yeah. No, by the laws of primogeniture in England, he was always going to be his. He was the son of the son of the king. Yes. He's the first son of the first son of the king. Yes. When his oh, father I, died. I get, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Okay. So, and then after that. Yeah. After he was deposed, nothing was legal anymore. And, and everything was revealed <laughs> as artifice. And, you <laughs> this know. This is where any of my students who have found my podcast, we're talking about feudalism in grade seven or grade eight social studies right now. If you upend the feudalism period. The hierarchy. This is what happened. Okay, yeah, Richard the second is the last time. You're absolutely right. So I mean, and his the fact that I mean, like the 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 weep for King of Kings or whatever the speech is yes. now. I can't even remember. It's but it's very well. It's very touching Talk and about very. The death of kings. Yeah, yeah. Like there's just there's some real weight to his character that you really only get after you've kind of gone through 
all the other ones. And yeah. the fact that Henry V comes back to it right before Agincourt, yeah. he's like, yeah, we really fucked up with Richard, mm-hmm. <laughs> but don't punish us anymore. We need this. We need this win. We need the W, guys. Uh, because because Richard was the source of it all. And I, I really, really wish that uh, Shakespeare had written Henry VI through Richard III after he'd written yeah, the other ones. Yeah, I can't because... imagine what the plays would have been like had you had yeah. this as the base instead yeah. of this being the cap. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like he, he could have done some really, really amazing things with, with those same situations and uh the character of henry the sixth i think really could have been turned into something great yeah. if you had him as like a young child and then a teenager and then a uh, an adult getting deposed or something like that like there, there'd be more room for that yeah. um as opposed to a 50 year old man pretending to be a baby <laughs> that's just that was just the bbc production but damn it that's the only one that exists um <laughs> so yeah I, I, I but mean, maybe it wouldn't be the only one that that's exists true if it right? had been you know written yeah. after this yeah and and written chronologically. Yeah. Keep Richard the Third the same though. I think oh, that yeah, it's I so think good. that story so fun. stands alone. <laughs> but that's what makes Richard the Third such a weird history play because it doesn't feel like it. It feels like a tragedy and it feels like a Yeah. It, it's just it's very different from yeah. the other plays. Yeah. The way that Henry V feels different too. Yeah. Well Henry V is is such an interesting I'm glad I'm I'm glad we're we're doing this one because well, it was, it's, it's what it was, we had to it was do. coming it was up i know but i'm just saying i'm glad we read it i've i've really enjoyed watching it i've liked every version i've ever seen of it really it's just a, it's a good play the speeches are awesome it doesn't speak to me the time. same way i think it speaks to you but i think that's yeah. partly because i'm, I'm a, a woman and you're yeah. a dude yeah. and that's you know yeah i need i, I need another wonder woman to come out <laughs> That's how I, you know, if if how I felt uh, is how you feel reading yes. Henry the Fifth or watching any, you know, superhero movie, then I get it. Yeah. Nothing will come of nothing. So what's that, what's next? What 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 are we doing after this? After this comes a episode devoted to producing Shakespeare. I, We've actually recorded this in advance. Yeah. Uh, we had an interview with two lovely individuals from uh, Free Will Shakespeare. Festival, which is our local Edmonton. Yes, Shakespeare very Festival. excited to talk to them, uh, David Horak and Nicola Tom mm-hmm. uh, from the Free Will Shakespeare Fest. Um, just because that's our that's where our first summer that we were together, we went to see a player. Maybe it was the second. I think it was the second remember. one. Yeah. But either way, but, yeah. very early on in our relationship, yeah. so it's it's something that's very deeply tied to our love of Shakespeare. So to be able to speak to them about what goes into producing not just a, a Shakespearean play, but a whole festival devoted to Shakespeare. Yeah. And they do put on a wonderful month-long festival yep. um, every summer. Yep. So uh, check that out. That'll be out uh, two weeks from today. Yep. Um, if you're listening to this, the day it's released. If you're listening <laughs> to this 10 years from now. Then it's um, already out there. Yeah. Go listen. Uh, and the next play after that, I want you to guess, because I, I have the list on my side of the desk uh, here. It's a gooder. It's Hamlet. It's not Hamlet. Oh, what but you're it? in the same kind Julius of ballpark. Caesar? It's Julius Caesar. Yes. I'm very excited for Julius Caesar. The first time uh, I yeah. I haven't read Julius Caesar, but um, yeah, I don't know if I have either. We might have read it in in university, but it was one of those plays that I was just like, I'm not going to read this, and I just didn't. And somehow still got a B plus. Yeah, I can't believe you got a better <laughs> mark than me in that class. It still bothers me so but, much. But uh, we did get to see it performed this past winter before mm-hmm. coronavirus shut down all the theaters, yeah. and uh, that was the first time I'd seen it performed. And I thought we'd seen it at the Free Will. I think they did it one maybe year. Maybe we did, but this one I really remembered. Like, yeah, it, it stuck out to me. It was good. 
because and and I just think it's I'm really curious to see um, where our conversation goes with yeah, Julius Caesar. So you have that to look forward to, loyal listeners. Or first-time listeners who are just picking up midway through our run of or you know Shakespeare high school students who had to write about Henry V and came to this episode. Now. Or my students who are listening. I do I do have a lot of students who are like I found your podcast, Miss Damus. Sorry. <laughs> I know, and, that's, and I'm like, oh dear, <laughs> I'm gonna get fired. <laughs> but no, do your homework, boys and girls. I don't assign homework. What am What am I talking about? Nobody knows, Lindsay. Nobody knows. <laughs> You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at TheBixPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TheBixPod, or by email at TheBixPod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.